Declan McAvoy arrived at work one day to discover that one of his co-workers had died while getting ready for work that very morning. And this hit Declan hard because not only was it a close co-worker, but the guy was only 50 years old when he died, and Declan was 45, just five years off. It was a wake-up call for him. He suddenly realized that he had no idea how much time was left on the clock for him or for anyone for that matter. And with that thought process, the road became clear for Declan McAvoy. It was time to get out and do what he wanted. And that involved a motorcycle, even though he hadn't been on one in 20 years. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Dragoon. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Bayer. Quentin Smoke. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hello, so my name is Declan McAvoy and I am from a small village called Quinn in County Clare on the west coast of Ireland. suppose I could call myself an adventure motorcyclist that's a debatable term as to what that could be but I'm a person who loves to travel and loves to meet people and I like the planet and I like geography Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. So are you a motorcyclist or a traveler first? Jim, I taught you to keep the difficult questions till the end. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I probably started off as a traveler because uh, I, I did travel to some strange places before I ever got on a motorcycle. And uh, actually, I remember my first very first journey was way back in 1982 to... Uh, Russia at the time before the fall of the Iron Curtain and uh, I was just a 19 or 20 year old guy and uh, I was blown away by that that just totally sowed the seed it was like a a really big internal energy release that whoa I gotta have more of this 
Well, well how did you end up in Russia? What was that trip about? And, and how old were you then? It, it, it was crazy, really, Jim, because I was in my third year in college in Dublin. And it was a tradition in third year that, you know, before the big exam in summertime, people would maybe, the students would organise among themselves to maybe go to Spain or something like this. That would be the typical destination for a few days to chill out before this big exam would come. And uh, some idiot in our class suggested we'll go to Russia. (laughs) It was just the most crazy suggestion. In fact, it was so crazy that it got a lot of traction because really to travel to Russia in those days was incredibly difficult. And uh, that trip got a lot of traction and we ended up being about... 12 students who, I think we took a boat from Ireland across the Irish Sea. We took a bus down to Heathrow and it was my first ever plane journey at 18 years of age. We flew from Heathrow then to Moscow. We stayed in Moscow for three or four days, seeing the sights, and then we moved by overnight train up to St. Petersburg. And even the concept of riding an overnight train was something I found very unusual because in Ireland... Ireland's a very small country. You would travel, you know, from east to west by train in two hours. And here we were on an eight-hour overnight train. Wow, that that must have been amazing. There must have been so much wrapped up in that trip, including the fear of everything that was new. I mean, you're going behind the Iron Curtain. That's fear enough. Cultures you you don't understand or or you know very little about, and certainly a language that I doubt you spoke any of when you went. That's true, Jim, yeah. I don't know about the fear, really. I think we were probably too young and too naive to even realise there are dangers out there. We were just some young guys going out looking for fun. Mm. And uh, yeah, we certainly found it. And uh, I think around my mid-twenties, then I got an opportunity to go and uh, live in Australia for a year. And I, you know, did did the year of work over there and then bought uh, one of those VW uh, mini buses. Some people call them a Jesus bus or a hippie bus. <laughs> and nice. I drove one of those about 20,000 kilometers around Australia. And yeah, I was very intrigued by that journey indeed, you know, but the notion of doing anything bigger or beyond that kind of wasn't really on the radar at the time. Of course, then, you know, it, it was always on my mind that, uh, you know, when I would, maybe when I would retire someday, I'd love to get back into that romantic idea of uh, getting a motorcycle again and picking up on some of the travels that, you know, I had done in my earlier years, not so much by motorcycle, more so by, as I said, the Volkswagen bus around Australia or the train tours around Moscow, all the likes out there. But any of the motorcycling that I had done had been confined to Ireland. But I did have the idea that when I would retire, maybe I'd get back into it. And then I actually came into work one morning. I, was, I think I was probably about 45 years old myself, maybe at the time. I had been off a motorcycle for 20 years and I arrived in work and a very good colleague of mine failed to arrive in. And on inquiry about where was he or what was going on, it appeared that he had actually died on his bathroom floor, shaving, getting ready for work, mm. 50 years of age. And that was a really big shock to me. Not only the fact that he was a very close colleague, but it was a little bit of a wake-up call that, wow, this man is 50 years of age and his future is now gone. I'm 45. You know, who can ever guarantee about the future? And uh, it, three weeks later, I found myself riding a Honda DeVille from York in the UK back to Ireland in the middle of November on a very dark, grey, rainy evening, riding about 40 kilometres per hour 
on the hard shoulder of the motorway going across the UK, being passed up by bread vans. And I was so rusty, I hadn't rode in like 20 years. Why the bike? Well, like, so you saw you saw a friend pass away and you, it made you think about your own mortality. Why does that point you towards a motorcycle? I think it was that that thing was still in my mind all along that when I would retire, I would get a motorcycle or I would do whatever. But I think for me, kind of the, my really big passion always kind of had, I'd always a great curiosity about traveling and meeting people from different cultures and uh, always had a love for geography and certainly did like riding motorcycles in my earlier days. So I kind of figured no better way really to have a hobby that kind of embraces all three of those things, motorcycling, geography, and people. And I think that's why I gravitated towards the idea of picking up a motorcycle and trying some adventures from there. You brought up five kids as well. Where are they at this point when you're getting back on the bike? I'd say they were nearly at that ideal age of being probably from seven years of age through to about 15 or 16 and uh, when I got back motorcycling, I just thought it would really be nice to share the journey with family members. So I think the first trip was with our oldest guy, who was about 16 at the time. And we took a trip uh, from John O'Groats in Scotland down to Land's End over a number of days. And he still talks quite a bit about that, you know. And then, of course, as the other kids started to get a little bit older, uh, we took trips down to Corsica to Belarus, to the Ukraine, to Scandinavia. And you can get very inventive about these things because I remember one particular year, we decided to go to Sardinia, an island in the Mediterranean, as a family holiday. You know, we would fly from our local airport here to Sardinia. And uh, of course, I'd always be scheming little plans. So maybe I suggested to my wife at home here, I said, you know what, I might just leave three or four days beforehand on the motorcycle. And I think maybe I, I might take Gemma with me, maybe our, our oldest daughter, you know. And so we would do that. We would leave about four or five days beforehand. We would ride across Ireland, down through the UK, down through France. And then we'd pick up a ferry maybe to Corsica, cross Corsica, the island of Corsica, and arrive in Sardinia just within a few hours of the rest of the gang flying in. <laughs> to Sardinia. And then somebody else maybe would take the back seat on the way home. The melding of, of travel for you and the motorcycle. Now you've been doing the short trips with the kids. Where does that sort of span out and become like a bigger thing for you? When do you expand your horizons and how? Yeah, well, you know, that, that was, Jim, that was a very interesting concept really, because, you know, I suppose in Ireland, most people would, for example, get four weeks annual leave from work. So if you're looking to do a motorcycle tour down through Europe, really after about two weeks, you need to begin to think about turning the ship around again and coming back up home, you know, and I often felt that was kind of drudgery, you know, to ride two weeks out into Europe and everything is new. And now after two weeks, suddenly, oh my God, we have to make that long, hard road back home again, you know. And uh, I think at that stage, after doing that two or three times, I started maybe getting a little bit inventive. So I remember one particular time I said, right, I've got four weeks holidays. So for the first two weeks, I'm going to ride on out into Europe. And for the second two weeks, I'm going to stay going. And when I get to the destination, which is now four weeks down the road and very far away from home, I'm going to organize for a friend to fly in 
and for him to pick up the motorcycle and ride it back home and I'll fly home. And I, I felt that was just the perfect answer. You were getting a four week long motorcycle ride, new countries every day, every day no, no having to turn around and come back home. You were getting that motorcycle ride based on a one way journey, you know, so you didn't have to pay for shipping because in Ireland we're an island nation. So if you ship out, you have to ship back in again. So you were getting everything. You were getting your hotels, your road tolls, uh, your shipping, your fuel, all based on a one-way journey. And you could push really far right up to the very edges of Europe and then simply have somebody else fly in. You might do a two or three day overlap and uh, that person then would ride the motorcycle back. And I remember doing exactly that one particular time with our youngest, who was 12 years old. Um, Rachel, she's about 22 now. But Rachel and I left Ireland and uh, we took ship to the north of France. We rode down along the west coast of France, across the north coast of Spain, down along the west coast of Portugal. And we arrived at Faro on the Algarve in the bottom of Portugal. And uh, this, took, this journey took about maybe three or four weeks, uh, camping every night, taking things nice and easy. And then a good friend and his 13-year-old daughter flew in. Then we were four people for a couple of days and then my friend and his daughter, they rode the motorbike back home and Rachel and I flew home. That's really neat. And when you say you arrange for someone to come and do it, basically what you're looking for is somebody who wants an adventure the same as you do. They're just going to do it Absolutely. in the opposite way. I mean, it's, it's a great Absolutely. setup, a really good Absolutely. way to do it. Yeah. But I found then, I suppose, you know, it was like narcotics. I just, I wasn't getting enough of it. I, I, I needed more. So it started off with little motorcycle trips, maybe the length of Ireland. Then it started off with maybe two weeks in Western Europe. Now it was becoming four weeks down to Odessa in the Ukraine or up to Murmansk and up near Russia, you know. But I wanted more. So I, I really was anxious to maybe get out as far as uh, Central Asia. I'd read a lot about Kyrgyzstan and uh, Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and all of these places. And I thought, God, it'd be really cool now to take a trip up to Kyrgyzstan. So, of course, I contacted my good buddy, David. I said, David, look, I'm thinking of one a bit longer now next summer. And it's going to take about maybe eight weeks. And you ride from down through Europe to Istanbul. You go across Turkey into Georgia and Armenia and then through all that stands. And you finish in Kyrgyzstan. Are you up for it? And he came back and he said, no. Too much hassle. Too many borders. There's too much bureaucracy. Sorry, it's not me. And uh, it left me in a little bit of a dilemma in the sense that, okay, now if I ride a motorbike out, I've nobody to take it home. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time in Ireland, we were riding kind of reasonably, reasonably decent motorcycles. And I didn't really want to take the chance of riding a good motorcycle out to a totally unknown place uh, and, uh, and leaving it there. And would it be there in a year's time if I returned or so? I kind of had this idea that, look, if I buy a cheap and cheerful motorcycle, uh, do a little bit of work to it, ride it out there. If I come back the following year and it's not there, well, what about it? It it was cheap and cheerful. So, and I ended up buying about a 16 year old or a 15 year old, I think uh, 15 year old, probably Kawasaki KLR 650. And I bought it in Poland for about a thousand euro or thousand dollars, more or less the same. And I had it sent back to Ireland in the back of a van. And I spent the winter months modifying it and making panniers and swapping out 
wheel bearings and replacing brake cables and upgrading front suspensions and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so probably spent another thousand euro on it. So for two thousand euro, I had a completely finished motorcycle pointing east and uh, ready to take on an adventure. And what do you do with that? Well, I, I actually, I went into work one day and I said, is there any chance of taking 10 weeks off? Uh, just don't pay me. And they said, okay, well, let's think if we need you or can we do without you for 10 weeks? And pretty soon they realized they could certainly, certainly could do without me. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> and uh, so I decided, okay, let's see where 10 weeks will take me. And a uh, very interesting journey. So it was across Europe, which is kind of easy street. Uh, to Istanbul, all the way across Turkey. It took about 11 days to cross Turkey. Then into Georgia, beautiful, beautiful country. Uh, from Georgia, then down into Armenia, and then got spat out the very bottom of Armenia into Iran. And uh, took about eight or nine days to cross Iran. And from Iran, then into Turkmenistan, and about maybe three or four days crossing Turkmenistan, then into Uzbekistan. So, of course, you're getting into Silk Road country here mm -hmm. and from Uzbekistan into Tajikistan and then finished up in Kyrgyzstan. And your plan is to leave the bike at that point? The plan was simply to leave the bike in Kyrgyzstan and uh, maybe come back a year later and decide what might come next. Right. Did you work on this in arranging a place to store it in advance or did you just leave that until you got there? I worked on it in advance. I hopped on the net and I must say, I really, you know, I think people who made such journeys back in the time of Ted Simon or, or even way back earlier, they were real heroes because nowadays you just jump on the internet. Yeah. Uh, there are so many forums and so on and so forth. And there was a lot of forums and I got a hold of a guy in Kyrgyzstan who emailed me back. And his name was Alan McFall. And I thought, that's not very much a Kyrgyz name. <laughs> and it turned out this guy was from Texas and he and his wife were running an orphanage for children in Kyrgyzstan. He was an avid motorcyclist himself, riding the second generation of KLR 650. Mine was the first generation. Mm -hmm. And he said, sure, you can leave it in my place. And uh, I think about two days out of Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan, I met him on the road. And again, of course, with the aid of WhatsApp and dropping a location pin and all that modern technology stuff. And he escorted me back to their place in, near Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan. And this guy just couldn't do enough for me. Not only stored the motorcycle, but helped me make so many repairs. I had been on the road for 10 weeks. I was looking a bit malnourished. I was fed and watered and, and we remain very good friends actually to this day. And that must be about maybe six years ago when, when we first met and he overwintered the bike and I returned then the following summer. And, uh, I think when you're in Central Asia, like, and you're planning another trip, it's probably just natural that you push on East and see, can you get to the end of the Eurasian continent? This started a whole new way of travel for you. I mean, you mentioned up until now you'd been doing the the, the one-way trip with a friend riding it back. And, and now what you're going to do is you're going to start leaving the bike there. Does, does that change your idea for destination now as well? Does that kind of open things up for you? It, it does really, yeah, because you're now, you're now starting from Central Asia. So there's huge possibilities. Uh, and it was really a good idea not to have to return the motorcycle back home each and every time. Mm-hmm. 
And I've always, yeah, I've always found, you know, even the notion of finding somebody to store the motorcycle. A lot of people in Ireland would say to me, oh, is it hard to get somebody now, somebody that you can trust? But like that, that's never an issue. You know, the issue is more, is it legal to leave the motorcycle in that country for like nine or 10 months or whatever? Mm-hmm. You might get maybe, for example, a 90 day temporary import. So if you come back 10 months later, that's going to be a problem, you know. So the, it's the legality can be the challenge a little bit, but uh, I seem to have got over it. And that second year I started off from Kyrgyzstan and actually Alan and I and uh, an Irish friend, we were three motorcycles and we took a little tour around the Pamir Highway back down into Tajikistan and then back to Kyrgyzstan over about two weeks. And then I buggered off east, uh, first of all, north up through Kazakhstan and then into uh, Siberia and Russia, then dipping on down into Mongolia. Uh, it took maybe 10 or 11 days to cross Mongolia as far as Ulaanbaatar. And from Ulaanbaatar, then I went north into Ulaanude and then made a slight left-hand turn going west a bit to catch Lake Baikal. I always wanted to see Lake Baikal, so I diverted about 150 kilometres to see Lake Baikal. And it was when I was on Lake Baikal, I camped in Lake Baikal, the middle of that summer for a night or two. And some of the locals told me that, oh, this lake is frozen in wintertime. In fact, sometimes trucks drive on this lake. And of course I thought, well, if a truck can drive on it, surely a motorcycle can. And that later became a big bee in my bonnet uh, for projects in uh, in uh, Siberia and Lake Baikal. But on that particular year, I pushed on then from uh, Ulanude uh, to Cheetah, Tinda, then north up to Aldan and to Yakutsk, the coldest city on earth in far eastern Russia, and then to Ustnira. Many people would know these roads, many long distance motorcyclists, and the journey finished in Magadan in far eastern Russia. And they say that Magadan is as far as you can travel by road on the Asian continent. It's as most, as most uh, east as you can get. So I, I literally travelled from the very west of the Eurasian continent where I live here in Ireland to the very east and then the motorcycle was uh, put on a ship and sent across to Vancouver. You didn't. You, so you sent the motorcycle to Vancouver. Did you go with it or are you going home at that point? So I, I went home, my 10 weeks was up and I, I flew back home. Uh, I took a quick diversion to Kamchatka, uh, which is a peninsula that dips down there in far eastern Russia. And that was purely through the brotherhood of motor, uh, Russian motorcyclists because I remember being in a pub in Magadan one night and I just mentioned to somebody that, uh, whoa, this place Kamchatka seems to be a really cool place. And 20 minutes later, I had a, f- a friend re- request on Facebook from the president of the Kamchatka Motorcycle Club uh, who was more or less saying, you know, buy your air ticket, fly over here, you stay in my house, I'll give you a motorcycle. Wow. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's that's what I did for about a week over in Kamchatka. Ah. Uh, but ultimately returned to Ireland and went back to work, went back to family. And uh, so I figured, okay, once I arrive in Vancouver next summer, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start riding north. I rode north then up through BC, uh, then through the Yukon and on up into Northwest Territory. And uh, most motorcyclists who might go to North America like that, they're probably either thinking of Prudhoe Bay uh, or Tuk to Yaktuk in Canada. 
Sopruderho Bay is up the Dawson Highway and Tukta Yaktuk is up the Dempster. And I elected to go up the Dempster because a lot of people had said it's just a really nice, very beautiful scenery and that the other highway to Prudaho Bay was overrun with oil trucks going up and down to serve the oil industry. Mm-hmm. So I rode up to, it took about 11 days to ride from Vancouver up to Tukta Yaktuk on the top of the Northwest Territories, literally out onto the Arctic Ocean. I literally rode about 10 feet out onto the ocean, which was still frozen. In, in the month of June. Hmm. I thought that was incredible. Yeah. You mentioned shipping it to Vancouver. How did you ship it to Vancouver? How did you arrange that when you weren't going to be there? You went home, you shipped the bike to Vancouver. Who received it and how did you store it? Yeah, I established a shipping contact in Magadan who works with another shipping contact uh, in Vladivostok. So the guy in Magadan sent it by ship down to Vladivostok. The guy in Vladivostok then put it into a container along actually with about 10 other motorcycles and it was ultimately sent to Vancouver. And it's amazing the logistics because uh, I was back home in Ireland, but that motorcycle was now in a container in Vancouver. So h- how do you get it through customs? So I emailed the shipper in Vladivostok and I said, was there anybody on that container who owns a motorcycle in that container who were from the Vancouver area? And he told me of two people, a guy and a girl, who had a motorcycle on that container and he gave me their email address. He probably wouldn't be able to do that in this day and age. (laughs) (laughs) And I emailed them and I said, look, I believe your motorcycle was on the same container as mine. Would there be a possibility you could clear my bike through customs as well? And they got back to me and said, yeah, absolutely sure. Tell us how to do it. So I had to give them power of attorney, you know, to to sign documents and so on. Basically, it's like signing over the motorcycle nearly, Mm -hmm. which I duly did. And they cleared the motorcycle for me. And uh, and we are still friends, the best of friends to this day. We met in Vancouver a year later when I arrived over. And uh, we still keep in touch in a big way. Wow. That's pretty mm. neat. That, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. People are great. It, it's one thing I've really learned. People, people are fantastic. And you said that that's from all, everywhere you've traveled, you've found that all around the world. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I, I, and I've often said it that, you know, we tend to stereotype nations a little bit, you know, uh, but it's really, I think, the, the governments of those countries that paint that stereotype picture, you know, uh, people, people generally are the same around the world. What, what makes you think when you're, when you're thinking about sending your bike to North America that you can just put it in a container and sort of arrange afterwards to have somebody process it for you. I mean, don't you fear that, that this is going to become a problem? Yeah, I, I'm not sure what I, what really was in my head at the time, but yeah, like I had to say goodbye to the motorcycle in, in uh, Magadan and ultimately I was flying home to Ireland. So there was a problem to be overcome, you know, but I think when you travel, you run into so many I wouldn't call them problems maybe, but there's so many challenges that you run into. And I always think that there's always an answer there, you know, but it's just a matter of finding the answer. And uh, so I think I spent maybe a couple of nights on the on the net and emailing people back and forward and eventually got a hold of this couple who had their motorbikes on that container and, and that was it. When you're doing that, when you're doing a couple of days on the internet trying to find somebody, 
do you feel panicked at all or do you have the utmost confidence that ah, it'll work out? Yeah, I think I, I generally think it'll work out. Just yeah. a matter of figuring out how. Yeah, yeah. Have, have and, you uh, always thought that way or is that from travel? I think it's from travel. Yeah, I definitely think it's from travel because, you know, um, it, some of the recent stages, so I, I've this, this particular taking 10 weeks off, I've done it seven times now. Uh, that time of arriving in Vancouver was uh, the beginning of the third. Uh, but I found in, in some of the more subsequent trips, the problems, the challenges were much bigger. But there's always an answer. You mightn't, you mightn't think it at the time, but it's always there. So what's the method then? If you run into a roadblock, somebody tells you, well, you know, your bike is sitting in Vancouver in this case and there's nothing you yeah. can do. You're going to have to fly over here. I mean, yeah, well, ultimately, if that's what it would have taken, I, I would have done that. I think mm-hmm. that was like plan D, you know, okay, I just have to bite the bullet on this and fly over. And it's interesting as well, because even if you look at the cost of, for example, to fly over and back, from here in Ireland uh, and add that on to the cost of shipping, it, it by far exceeds the value of the motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. Because this motorcycle was, was, I mentioned, was bought for about a thousand euro, uh, spent about a thousand euro modifying it. Mm-hmm. That's 2000 euro, which is the same as the cost of sending it across from uh, Asia to North America. And a lot of people said to me, like, it's not economically viable, really, what you're doing there. And I you know, uh, they're right, you know, but I, at this stage, had it in mind that there's a slim possibility I might even get this motorcycle around the world. <laughs> it was never the plan, actually, when I started out. But when I reached Magadan, there's a local man who lives in our village here, a chap called Eddie Lawrence. Eddie was the go-between between our village and the local newspaper. And he wrote an article about how Declan McAvoy in his bid to circumnavigate the globe. Uh, and I got a hold of the article and I read it and I thought, whoa, <laughs> is that what I'm doing? Or is that the <laughs> expectation? <laughs> but of course, when you do get to the very end of Russia and you find yourself then over at the top of North America, you know, you you, you can see that hmm, maybe there is a possibility if I ride the bike from Tuk to Yaktuk down to Ushuaia, then it's really only a matter of coming up through Africa. Uh, and that's exactly... What happened then? Stage three took me from, as I say, Vancouver up to the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, to Tuktoyaktuk, then over into Alaska, over what they call Top of the World Highway into Alaska, back down to Vancouver, San Francisco, uh, on down into Baja, California, then across into Mexico and through all of the Central American countries. And on that particular third year, I finished in Costa Rica. And uh, again, the storage issue, what am I going to do? In Costa Rica, the option was actually you get a 90-day temporary import. But if you put it into a bonded warehouse, the 90-day clock stops counting down. But the only problem is it costs €2 a day or $2 a day in the bonded warehouse. So over 10 months, that could be seven or $800, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did at the end of stage three. And uh, came back the following year, uh, haggled a little bit with the people who were running the warehouse and they knocked off a couple of hundred dollars. I think I paid them about maybe five or six hundred. Did some repairs to the bike 
uh, I always carry a list of stuff that needs to be done for the next time. So you bring over your parts, you do your repairs, and then from Costa Rica, then on down into Panama. And now there is the problem about the Darien Gap. Right. We're going to take a quick break. I've got three things I want to tell you about. When we come back, though, we got a lot more. Stay with us. You'll want to hear this. If you've ever had cold feet, you know how frustrating that can be for riding a motorcycle. There is a cure. You only need to get it once. It requires no charging. There's no cords to connect. It's just what I always like to think of as as good old-fashioned quality. The kind of quality that you can count on. So you forget about it. You just put it on and you forget about it because you know that it will be there for you. And what I'm talking about here is Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks are made specifically for motorcycle riding. They're made of a blend of merino wool and possum fur weaved into a sock that is meant specifically for riding motorcycles. I like the tall ones. They go all the way up to the top of my riding boots. They prevent chafing. They're super comfortable and they keep my feet warm. And really importantly, they don't stink after hard use. And the reason they don't stink is because the fibers that they use to make the Pearly's Possum socks, the possum fur and merino wool, they have natural antibacterial qualities in them. So they just don't stink. I mean, you wear them day after day, if you do, and you'll be amazed. Not only that, they keep your feet warm and they keep your feet comfortable. Incredible socks. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. We're very lucky as motorcyclists to have a one-stop shop for motorcycle books, and that's called RoadDogPub.com. Road Dog is a publishing company started by motorcyclist and author Mike Fitterling. Mike decided to build Road Dog Pub into a motorcycle book publishing company printing and promoting just motorcycle books. Road Dog Pub has loads of titles, loads of great titles. The latest one is called The Tom Report, Seattle to Santiago on Motorcycle. Now, tell me if this quote from doesn't grab your attention. Quote, these are not bedtime stories. If reading the rough spots from this journey is getting you down, then try riding them. Pick up a lonely planet if my realities are too harsh because this is an adventure. Now hold on tight. Unquote. That's the Tom Report by Tom Router. Now, all of Road Dog publication books are available either from their website at RoadDogPub.com or any good bookstore. But anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. RoadDogPub.com. Every rider wants to be a better rider. I mean, we all want to improve our skills. And the only way to do that is to learn the steps and then get out there and spend time riding, practicing what you've learned. It's kind of like exercise. You can't just pay somebody to do it for you. It doesn't work that way. There is no shortcut to success. But there are some things you can do. And there's one thing in particular, and that's having a key piece of equipment on your bike. You can ride just about any bike, but you need to be able to speak to the bike and have it listen. And what I'm talking about is using your feet on your foot pegs to speak and having the bike respond. And only a quality set of foot pegs that are designed just for that purpose will get you the most out of your connection. Get what the pros ride on, and that's IMS Products foot pegs. IMS has a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs that are designed for riders by riders, tested and refined by riders and racers. They make extra wide ADV1 and ADV2 pegs and more, including their core series, 
all made of cast-certified stainless steel, all heat-treated, all made in the USA, and all warrantied for life. IMSproducts.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. You, you've also, um, you've said that um, you're curious as an, from an engineer's perspective, what is around the world journey? And it's an interesting statement when people say they're going to ride around the world because, you know, what there's not a, a, a true definition of what riding around the world is. There's not points that you have to go through. How do you come up with your idea of riding around the world? Yeah, it's a, for me, that certainly was an interesting concept. And I remember looking online a bit about what does around the world mean? I don't think anyone can say there's any true definition. No. Of course, Ewan and Charlie rode from London all the way across Asia to Alaska, to New York, back to London. Was that around the world? Maybe, maybe it was, you know. Or if you went up to the North Pole and you walked across all lines of longitude in the space of 30 seconds, have you gone around the world? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and then a lot of people would say, in fact, you probably have to make an incursion uh, into the Southern Hemisphere at least once, but probably twice is better. So it is all a bit fluffy. And, uh, you know, with my kind of mechanical engineering head on, I was looking for, there's got to be a better definition of this. And I remember thinking, you know, if it was possible to pick up, actually in the little room I'm sitting in at the moment, I'm looking over, there is a globe uh, sitting on a stand but if I could pick up that globe and take a big needle and if I could push the needle in at one particular point say for example in Ireland and I push that needle in at Ireland and I push it through the globe right through the very centre where will it emerge on the other side so in the case of Ireland you would emerge about a thousand miles off the South Island of New Zealand so obviously a bit hard to get a motorcycle to that particular point. So these two points that are exactly opposite each other are called antipodes. And I thought, wouldn't it be kind of cool if I could find two antipodes on my route, two points that are exactly opposite. And, uh, and I found those two points. Of course, again, on the internet, there's software that can help you do this. And the first point was somewhere in Siberia near a small town called Keylock. And I remember snapping a photograph with a cheesy smile. I was 55 degrees north and 110 degrees uh, east uh, and some odd decimal places. And then two years later in southern Argentina, snapping the very same type of photograph, but now I was 55 degrees south. And rather than 110 degrees east, I was 70 degrees West, again with a few decimal points, but actually accurate within about 10 meters. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of cool. I, I remember actually the second time in uh, taking the photograph of the second antipode. So I'd re- left a little small town called Rio Gallegos in southern Argentina, and I'd programmed into my GPS antipode number two, and I was riding up the road to antipode number two. It was about 40 kilometers up the road. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at the GPS counting down and then I was 10 kilometres, then I was five, four, three, then a co- one kilometre, then 800 metres, 600 metres, 200 metres, 100 metres, and finally 20 metres, and then you're there. And it was a surreal feeling. I remember getting off the motorcycle and making a little video and taking some photographs and there was the odd car or truck passing by. 
And I'd say they were looking, wondering, what's that idiot doing? What on earth? Stopped at that particular point. Exactly. Why is he so excited? <laughs> He's out in the middle of nowhere. But yeah, for me, it was kind of cool. I mean, it's so pretty I abstract. Kind of thought, it's, it's a pretty abstract yeah. relationship with the, with the other side of the, yeah, the yeah. world. But. <laughs> but yeah, for me, I kind of felt if you can start uh, in a particular place, ride through Antipode 1, ride through Antipode 2, and arrive back to the point that you start, maybe for me, it, it would seem like around the world. Of course, you know, you have to ship the motorcycle as well it, over, over oceans. So you could argue, did you really go around the world? You had to ship in a couple of places. But yeah. I think if you take the shortest possible shipping uh, situation. You mentioned you got to, down to Central America, then you flew back home. Yeah, down to Costa Rica, flew back home, and then I arrived back uh, 10 months later. And uh, the whole Darien Gap thing from Panama to Colombia, a lot of people actually, you know, they talk about the, is it the Trans-America Highway? Is that what it's called? The Pan, Pan-American Pan Highway. Highway. Yeah. So the Pan-American Highway, you can go from Ushuaia all the way up to Alaska or vice versa. But in actual fact, you can't, there's a bit of the road missing about maybe, I don't know, it's 150 kilometers or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a kind of impenetrable jungle in the south of Panama or the north of Colombia. Uh, they say it's riddled with warlords and drugs and so on. And I often wondered though, why didn't they just build a road through it? Because you know, with the technology they have now, they, they can build bridges that are you know, two and three kilometers long, they can build tunnels that are hundreds of kilometers long. Yeah. Surely you can build a road. But in actual fact, I don't think the will is there to build that road. Yeah, I think it's more Maybe. more political than, than yeah, anything. I think than, it is. Than physical. I mean, I mean there's certainly yeah. logging roads and we've had people on who've done the Darien Gap, who've who've actually managed to get through the Darien Gap. I mean, it's getting through it on a motorcycle is kind of similar to going around the world, isn't it? I mean, you're going to have oh, to do something on, on water. Um, yeah. But... Um, there's certainly people who have done that, but how did you get around? What did you, what did you do? Yeah. I, and I'm very aware of it, uh, uh, that people have actually gone through on a motorcycle. And I think, you know, I, I've met so many people in my travels, particularly cyclists, but I've met people who I think whatever I'm doing, they make it look just like I'm doing nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, people who are cycling around the world, I remember crossing the Karakum Desert in Turkmenistan. It took me two days, one overnight. At the end of that journey, I met a French couple who had cycled. I asked them, how long did it take you to cross the desert? Nine days. So they camped every day, rode in that intense heat for eight or nine days. They camped every single night. They had to bring all the food and the water and so on. I thought, whoa, kudos. Mm -hmm. And likewise with the Darien Gap, you know, you have people who said, look, I'm not going around it. I'm going through it. And, and as you say, and you rightfully say, that that's a whole adventure in itself. So for me, I chose to, there were various options. You could, you could put your bike on an airplane and send it from Panama to Bogota. And I thought, no, that's just, that's just too much of the journey been taken away. So I rode the motorcycle to a small little village called Porto Lindo, uh, about 80k east of uh, Panama City, and put it on a sailboat. And we sailed down along by the San Blas Islands and into Cartagena in Colombia. And we took the bike off in Cartagena and... Is that, was the stall rat? No, it wasn't. Uh, 
but it was with a very similar, uh, there was a ship called the Sovereign Grace, but it was the same idea. Mm -hmm. It was like a five day kind of sailing down through the San Blas Islands. And uh, the, the Sovereign Grace was run by a guy from New Zealand. And yeah, it was a very interesting journey. I, I hate sea now. I'm really bad at sea, but but nonetheless, yeah, it was it was nice to do it. Now, did you just find that when you got there? Did you sort out the Darien problem after you arrived or did you do this in advance? I, uh, I arrived in Panama and uh, I had a few things in my mind. Uh, I definitely wasn't for doing the air hop from Panama to Bogota, but I knew you could do a container as well. Uh, you, you could put your bike into a container would sail out of Panama and go by uh, in a cargo boat to Cartagena mm-hmm. but it was taking about two weeks uh, and I knew also off the Stalrath and I think I made some inquiries about that I don't know was it sailing at that particular time uh, but yeah all of that was kind of done uh, probably on the road between Costa Rica and Panama kind of trying to figure out okay where, where's how's this problem going to get solved so I I committed to it then, I'd say, about two days before the the sailing date. You know, see, I asked that because most people, when they're traveling on a time limit, which each of your trips have been on somewhat of a time limit, although quite a nice one, you know, 10 weeks, a long time, mm. you, you're still doing things sort of on a whim. You're, you're traveling yeah. like someone who's traveling traveling open-endedly. Is is the, the reason that you can do that because you don't actually have a destination? Uh, well, I, I probably ultimately would have a destination in mind. So, for example, like clearly the journey, uh, uh, we'll say on the year of making that Darien Gap jump, the journey was from Costa Rica down to Ushuaia on the west coast of South America and to finish in Buenos Aires. That that was my plan. So doesn't it stress you out then having to deal with something that isn't arranged when you get there, when you have limited time? No, not not really. Like, I think something like that is probably not too difficult to arrange. Although if it had shipped in a container thing, it would have knocked my schedule by two weeks in a big way, you know. Mm. That might have added some pressure. But, but generally, I don't kind of plan it in too much detail. So, for example, if I'm going from Costa Rica down to Ushuaia and back up to Buenos Aires and I have 10 weeks... I, I would kind of think, look, by five weeks, you really, you ought to be in Peru or, or, you know, Bolivia or somewhere like that. So that's as much as I would plan it, even on a daily basis. Like I would never plan uh, my accommodation for the night, uh, you know, in advance. So usually what I would do is like about four o'clock in the evening, three or four in the evening, I'd say, right, you know, how much daylight is left? How much further? Maybe is there another, maybe I can do another 100k so, okay, let's see, where's the next town? And of course, out comes the phone, the great technology that our predecessors from 30 and 50 years ago didn't have. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would look and say, oh, there's a little town now about 80 kilometers down the track. And, oh, there seems to be good reviews on that particular place. So I'll copy and paste the coordinates into my GPS and I'll just literally land up at the door. And that's normally what I would have done. I remember actually one time in a small place called Chile Chico in the bottom of Chile. Uh, I read off a place 80k up the road. The reviews said Betty was a very nice person. Betty was a great host. Betty was this. Betty was that, you know. And I remember copying and pasting the coordinates into my GPS and arriving at the door and knocking at the door. 
in this little house in Chile Chico. And this elderly lady opened the door and I said, hello, Betty. (laughs) (laughs) And she was saying, how did you know my name? (laughs) But this is how connected we are these days, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I definitely, I don't plan things really too much in advance, you know. At this point, you're traveling alone because before you said, you you know, you took your kids sometimes in the back or one of your kids in the back and you sort of took turns with it. Now you think that solo traveling is the most rewarding. Why is that? And how does that contrast to traveling with your kids in the back? Yeah, I I definitely have found that it's the most rewarding. Uh, You know, it might stem back a little bit, Jim, when I mentioned to you about the whole confidence thing in school. Mm-hmm. how confidence was never given out in abundance. And I remember the, the first big kind of big solo journey I did was literally riding down to Istanbul and on across through Iran. And uh, like, for sure, I was, I was nervous. I was afraid. I was fearful. I was all emotions, you know. But I used to, I remember, uh, for example, uh, leaving Armenia uh, and your solo rider it takes about an hour and a half to check out with all your documents and so on and so forth. And finally, they give you a little scrap of paper, a little docket, and you ride down to the gate, uh, two big steel gates, which is being guarded by a soldier with a gun slung over his, his shoulder. The gates are locked. There's a chain around the gate. There's a padlock on it. You show him your little ticket. And if all is in order, he walks over to the gate, he undoes the lock, he takes the chain off, he opens up the two big steel gates and you ride on through. And as you look in your rearview mirror, you can see him closing those two gates and putting the lock back on. And I remember this was my small little journey to no man's land onto Iran. And I remember nearly having a little panic attack. Like, my God, I sure hope all my documents are in order when I get up here to Iran. Because if they're not... Do you think for one moment the crowd behind me are taking me back? Absolutely not. Right. You came in on a, on a single entry visa. The gate is closed behind you. Any problems you face from here on, they're yours. If you're not allowed into Iran, we're not taking you back. And I remember having a lot of those fearful moments, you know. But then I would look back and I'd say, well, look at, you know, because you'd have these conversations in your head. Look at, I, I made it all the way down to, to Turkey. I made it through Istanbul. I made it the whole way across Turkey. I made it into Georgia. I made it into Armenia. Why am I not going to make it into Iran? You know, so where is this, where is this fear coming from? And I found actually over the years, I developed a kind of a nearly a perverse interest in the subject of fear and why the, you know, it's fear you generate. It's the, you know, it's like this monkey sitting on your shoulder telling you of all the possible things that are going to go wrong, you know, and, and he, he is the perception monkey because we are, we are building all of these perceptions in our head about what the future, uh, the, the problems that the future is going to carry. So when I get into Iran, this could go wrong, that could go wrong, this could go wrong, you know. And I always kind of said to myself, do you know what, when you look forward you look forward with fear and intrepidation. But when you look back, it's always with a smile. So mm. so why do we have this thing about fear and intrepidation looking forward, you know? And uh, so that's just getting back to your question about being a solo rider. 
I found that having all of these experiences and, and having to deal with all of these, you know, mind games or, or physical things that must be done at a border or documentation that must be in order, like, you know, it's a bit difficult to explain, but every problem that there was made along the way, I solved that problem. And it really inspires your confidence to think this is something I did myself. And a very good example of that would be, I returned from Africa about two or three weeks ago and travelled up to some quite difficult countries on the west coast of Africa. But I knew that there was a Brazilian guy and I, through social media again, we were on a, you could say, a collision course and we met in Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo. And we looked at our schedules and you know, we seemed to get on reasonably well and our schedules were kind of more or less the same and our riding style and speed and the time we leave at in the morning and the distance we cover during the day kind of more or less seemed the same. So we agreed we would ride together for a period and we rode for about two or maybe two and a half weeks together. And I remember thinking to myself, this is now a shared trip. And would I have been able to overcome all the obstacles that we collectively overcame would I have been able to do that if I was on my own? And I found actually as well at border crossings, so he spoke very good French. Uh, I have very bad French. So I was doing a lot of leaning on him. And I was beginning to think at the end of the two weeks that, God, I'm being carried on this trip a little bit and I would nearly rather it that I was back solo again. And sure enough, after two weeks, I did become a solo rider again. And it just felt great to be the captain of your own ship one more time. Mm. And where again, you must face all of these challenges and you must gain the confidence that succeeding with these challenges brings, you know. Fear comes in, in many different ways and many different types, I guess, of fear. Some fear is very useful for us, you know, to uh, fear of burning your hand on a hot stove, as simple as that, and and understanding that sort of thing. That That's healthy fear. Some of the fears that we that you're talking about with the monkey on your shoulder, of course, are, are unhealthy or somewhat could be considered unhealthy fears. Are you trying to... to overcome the unhealthy fears? Is, is Are you trying to make it so that you don't have any fears? Is that is that part of what you're after when you're trying to accomplish these things on your own? I think, Jim, I'm just trying to, to teach myself to be realistic, you know, uh, uh, because it's like I say, it's human nature just to find every possible little thing that could possibly go wrong and put it out there in front of you. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it can nearly stymie your your ability to get through the day. So I think for me, I'm trying to say, look, let's be rational and let's be logical and let's be reasonable here. And why for one minute do you think that this could possibly happen or that could possibly happen? And you know what's going on in your head here now, don't you? It's the perception monkey that's really playing games at you and, you, and you're soaking all of this up. So you have this little, these conversations, you know, in your head to say, look, I need to be rational about this. Because when I look behind at all the challenges or all the things that happened behind, I'm looking behind with a smile. Why, 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 look, why don't you look forward with that same smile? Mm. You know, so it's, I look at it's just, it's mind games, a lot of it, you know, because it is challenging to be a solo rider and to, you know, I mentioned I did come up through Africa there and uh, like I had uh, one or two 
quite serious incidents uh, from a security point of view in, in Africa, you know. And uh, so, yeah, there are genuine concerns, but you just, you can't let it take over the show. When you just told the story about the gate closing behind you in the mirror and, you, you know, you almost have a panic attack from that. Does that not happen for you now? Is that is that fear gone or do you just evaluate that fear differently when it pokes its head up? Yeah, I, I think, I really do think that this, these journeys have really strengthened me as a, as a human being. And actually, Jim, would you believe the very same uh, thing happened uh, while I was in Africa uh, just a few weeks ago? Only this time, the country ahead were not for taking me in and the country behind certainly weren't for taking me back. That actually happened. So the, the fear that you had became a reality. You're stuck in what's called no man's did. land yeah. between yeah, these two borders. I, absolutely. So, so w- w- yeah. just when you when that happens, when you first realize that you're actually stuck, does your mind sort of turn on you and say, see, this is why you <laughs> should have been scared. This is why yeah. you were scared the first time. This I is what you should have so. been worried about. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Because I really do think you'd be kind of giving in to the whole, oh, the perception mon- monkey, he was right all along. And you wouldn't listen to him, would you? Oh, absolutely. But isn't that the, isn't that the time yeah. when it happens, though, when you're up against yeah. the wall and, and it feels like there's no escape? No, I, I definitely think you you decide, look at, okay, this has happened. So again, let's be let's be logical and let's be rational here. And where are we at? And, and what, what can we now do to, you know, like I'd be the first to put my hand up and say, you will not know what the solution is straight away. And you might sit down in a corner and think, you'll probably use quite a number of expletives and think, right, what's going to happen now? But it's like I said earlier, the solution is always there, you know, and and the solution was there. (laughs) So, you know, it's, yeah, you, you just learn so much, I think, from these trips and particularly the notion of, of trying to control perceptions. In that case that you got stuck, tell that story. What happened? So, um, you know, the, I was leaving Ghana uh, and going into Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa. And uh, with going into Cote d'Ivoire, you need, of course, you need a visa, but the, you also need a document called a Lassier Passe. And I think this is a leftover thing from COVID. So, I had to wait in Ghana for about six or eight days for this Lassier Passe to be processed. And when I went to the Cote d'Ivoire embassy in Ghana, uh, I handed in my various forms and there was a girl behind the counter called Andrea. And, and I'd always be extremely polite and extremely mannerly. And of course you would be because you're in their embassy asking for permission to go into their country. And, uh, at the end of all the conversation, I said to her, Andrea, would it ever be possible maybe to get a telephone number uh, that maybe I could call you in five or six days and just to see how things are progressing? Oh, she said, I, I'll give you my own mobile number. And she wrote it out to me. And I said, thank you, Andrea. I said, I really, really appreciate that. And when I arrived back at the hostel, I would connect with her on WhatsApp and I just would send a message back to say, Andrea, really appreciate the help you gave me today. Hopefully in a few days' time, we'll have some news. Thank you very much, Declan. And this establishes the connection. And about six days later, Andrea telephoned me and she said, Declan, your Lassier Passe document is ready. You may proceed to the border with Cote d'Ivoire. And I said, God, Andrea, that's great. 
uh, will I call out to the embassy and pick up that document? And she said, oh, no, 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 it's not really a document as such. It's uh, you will be on the system when you arrive at the border. And I thought, oh, that's that's fine. So I went down to the border, uh, again, at Cote d'Ivoire. I checked out again. I got my passport stamped out. I handed in my customs document for the motorcycle. And then I rode over this rickety little bridge, as most borders are defined by rickety little bridges crossing a river. Rivers usually define borders. And after one kilometre, I came to the Cote d'Ivoire control. And there were two huge big steel gates, just like how there were in Armenia, and they were closed. So I thought, okay, I'll just wait for a few minutes and someone will eventually come out through. And right enough, after about five minutes, one of the gates opened up to allow a truck out. So I went politely in behind the gate and there were six or seven police guys sitting around. And I don't speak French, so I'm moving from Ghana, which is an English-speaking country, to Côte d'Ivoire, which is French. So my only French would be, uh, Bonjour, monsieur, parlez-vous anglais? At two which they very quickly told me, if you want English, go back to Ghana. Here is French. <laughs> but then I would usually show them my passport and say, you know, I Irlande passport. So I'm not, they, they might think, okay, he's not a native English speaker. Let's give him a bit of a dig out. So they said, uh, where is your laissez passé? And I said, well, I understand that I am on the system. And they said, okay, give me your passport. So they hopped on the back of a little motorbike and they chased 400 metres up the road. And they duly returned 10 minutes later, handed me the passport. They said, you're not on the system. Contact your embassy. And they closed the big steel gate. Wow. And now I've checked out of Ghana behind me. I came in on a single entry visa. I've stamped out. I've handed in my customs document. I've crossed the rickety little bridge. And I'm here sitting at these two big steel, steel gates that are closed. What's it look like around you? Well, I just remember it was baking hot. And my first concern was that I just had about, I had a two litre bottle of water uh, bungeed on to the pannier, of which about half of it was drank. So I'm thinking, God, I've only one litre of water here now. That, that's really good. That's my very first problem, you know. Mm. And uh, then, yeah, I'm wondering what, what can happen here, you know. But, uh, and of course, my phone is really well charged. And normally when you would leave a country, I found you lose the mobile network very quickly. Within about two kilometers, you no longer have the mobile network of that country. And I had a Ghana SIM card in my phone. So the phone was charged and I looked to see had I signal and I had marginal signal. And I thought, okay, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to contact Andrea. And, and thankfully I had her number. And this I would always say is the importance of trying to be very polite and maybe to be honest in Ireland we would use the expression that I buttered her up sufficiently <laughs> for her to pass me her telephone number mm-hmm. and uh, so anyway I got on the phone I, I left a whatsapp voice message for her more or less saying hi Andrea how are you Declan here Andrea just have a small problem here I'm down at the border to Cote d'Ivoire and apparently I'm not on the system and they're not for letting me in and I've checked out again, so I kind of stuck in no man's land for a bit. Would really appreciate a bit of a dig out in your own time. <laughs> and uh, she didn't get that message like for about three hours. You know, on WhatsApp, you can see the message has not been received. Mm-hmm. And then after three hours, she telephoned me and thankfully I still had signal. 
And she said, oh, Declan, I'm very sorry. There, there must be some mistake because we processed all the documents and we sent them documents over to, to Abidjan in Cote d'Ivoire. And please, just uh, can you bear with me? I need to telephone my supervisor and try to find out what's happening. So about, again, three hours later, uh, she telephoned me and she said, Declan, can you give your telephone to the policeman behind the big gate? And I said, sure. So I walked politely around and just said to the main protagonist, uh, I handed him, I said, a telephone. And he said, uh, is, it in, is it in French? And I said, yes, oui. Because <laughs> I think if it was going to be in English, he said, I don't want him to do it. So uh, I could immediately hear, oh, oui, bon, yeah. And then he started telling all the guys around, shh, shh, stay quiet, it's the embassy on the line here. And uh, before I knew it, I was been whisked in like a VIP. Oh. Yeah. Given coffee and the, the whole, the whole royal treatment. And after an hour, I was on my way down into Cote d'Ivoire. But I was very lucky. It was only like four or five hours. I, I do know of people that have had to camp in no man's land for three or four days, you know. And, and of course, when you got her number, you had no idea. Although in the back of your mind, you're thinking there's always a chance and this is an excellent yeah, absolutely. contact. Yeah, what if and you it's good have, to have this contact. Oh, absolutely. But what if you didn't? What if you didn't get her number? What if she declined and said, <laughs> I, what would yeah. you have had to do at that point? Uh, I've really no idea. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody else might have come in with mobile signal. I could have dug out the embassy number back in, in Ghana. Or, mm. But I do know... I wouldn't be still sitting there today. You know, a solution would have come. Right. So you just figured out. So now, or like right after that happened, for instance, the next border that you go through, that the next time you're going through no man's land, is there heightened fear or is, is it even like, how has it changed? I, I think, Jim, to be honest, it would become even more blasé, you know, uh, and I, I did, I went through subsequent borders since, since that particular incident. And it, my mindset is, ah, it's never going to be as hard as what Ghana into Cote d'Ivoire would have been anyway, you know. <laughs> Could it be confused with being overconfident? Uh, I don't think so, because I, I just think I, like, I just feel I try to be really as realistic as possible. Because, you know, I think on this journey, I've passed through about, maybe about 80 countries. And this was the only time that I really had an issue. I, I mean, a big issue. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you look at even from a, from a statistical point of view, you know, it's the only time I really had a big issue. Right. I, in fact, a few countries before that, when I passed through Nigeria, I had a very serious security incident in Nigeria. But a lot of people kind of would say the same thing. Would, would that not put you off traveling? But that was the first incident I had in all of my travels around the world. So, so let, let's try and, and measure it for what it is if you know what I mean. What was that incident you had? In Nigeria, and again, I, I suppose I was quite fortunate in that uh, there were two of us. I had this Brazilian colleague and uh, we we were looking, like Nigeria is, is politically quite unstable. And if you look at, for example, the UK Foreign Travel Advisory website, they have Nigeria divided into red, orange and green zones. And uh, so you're, you're looking to say, look, we need to drive through a green zone. Oranges, we really don't advise you to go there. And red is, don't even think about it. And uh, we strayed into uh, an area that was, uh, 
I'm not sure, was it an orange zone or a red zone? I think it was an orange zone. Uh, we pretty much, we had a difference of opinion with regard to navigation on the day. I was using a, a Garmin GPS with maps for Africa. I could see we were about 20k from a highway and I wanted to take that 20k to get on the highway. He was using Google Maps and he was saying, no, we need to go this way here. We literally arrived at a T-junction. I wanted to go right. He said, no, we will go left. And we continued for about 50 or 60 kilometers through very poor road conditions. And I was kind of giving out thinking we should have gone on the highway. But in any event, uh, about an hour or two later on the side of the road, we were pulled over by two young guys with AK-47s on small motorcycles. Uh, They asked us, they were extremely aggressive. The AK-47s really didn't bother me too much. It was the tone of the aggression that I thought, God almighty, these people are very unreasonable. So where is your passport? And where is this and where is that? Then they looked at the passport, they looked at my visa and they said, your visa is shit. This was the word they used. Your visa is shit. I said, what shit about it? Your visa is shit. And then took the other passport from the Brazilian guy. Now you need to follow us. Follow us on your motorcycles. And it took us 10 kilometers off the road, up some small road where we were met with two more of these guys and uh, they were a non-entity. They weren't immigration, they weren't army, they weren't police because all of these people are, uh, you know, they're identified by their uniform. But these guys were uh, Nigerian militia and uh, we were duly interrogated very aggressively for about an hour. And um, at, at one point in time, when their attention wasn't so focused on us. I had a very strong contact down in Lagos. So I tried to send a location pin on WhatsApp with a small text message to say, look, we're in a serious bit of bother here and this is our location. But there was no mobile signal, so I couldn't I couldn't send it. Mm. And the interrogation went on for about an hour. What are, what are they accusing you of? Like, what do they think that you're doing wrong? Just basically that we were in Nigeria illegally. I see. Yeah. And no matter what we said, it just didn't matter. You know, I even said, do you think, why why would they have let us in at the border if our visa is not good? Mm-hmm. Then they proceeded to empty every nut and bolt out of our luggage. Uh, you know, just in, in a very aggressive kind of way, like the, the luggage wasn't put down on the ground. Everything was, was thrown out on the road. And uh, my Brazilian colleague... Actually, he was very upset. You know, I think for me, I think uh, maybe, I don't know, am I a bit naive as to where this could have gone? But he told me afterwards, he said, it's okay for you Europeans. You think all you have to do is put your hand in your pocket and give some money. He said, but I'm from Sao Paulo in Brazil. And I know that in many instances, these things end up very badly. Mm. And, uh, Ultimately, it did come to parting with money. You had to and pay a bribe, and yeah, yeah. And th- is that what they were after to begin with? Was that the whole pl- their plan? You think? Uh, I'd say it was that, but I think maybe our attitude to them kind of helped for a bribe just to be enough. Mm. I think if we had uh, been aggressive ourselves or tried to counteract their aggression maybe it could have ended much worse. 
uh, because we spoke with quite a number of people in the following days in Nigeria who told us that actually you guys do not realise how lucky you were that you just got away with parting with some money. Mm-hmm. That you got away at all by the sounds yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. And I remember for the rest of that day, this, my Brazilian colleague, Marcelo, I couldn't keep up with him for the rest of the day. He, it was like he was just on a mission to get to the end of the day, to get to a hotel or wherever. And we found this little hotel a number of hours later, just before nightfall, and we parked up. And us Irish, we, all, we have this kind of weird sense of humour, but I remember getting off the bike and saying to Marcelo, well, Marcelo, that's one of the best days motorcycling I ever had. <laughs> Tongue in cheek with a smile on my face, you know, but he, he just didn't see the humour. And uh, we went in, we ate together and he excused himself politely about 8.30 and just went to bed. And yeah, it really had a profound effect on him. And I think he was probably more tuned in to the reality of what could have happened, maybe mm. more so than what I was. You know, this is one of the things that, that I think can be mistaken from stories that we hear from people who have done things like you've done. You, you know, you go in somewhere into to a very dangerous situation, you come out fine, and then you tell everyone, everything's fine, you know, people are all fine. Well, the fact of the matter is just because you made it out, and I've said this many times on this show, but the, because you've made it out doesn't mean that it's safe, doesn't mean that the next person's going to have the same outcome. In other words, like, and my example is always, if you walk through a minefield and make it, it doesn't make the minefield safe. It just means that you happen to get lucky if you believe in luck or whatever the case was, happenstance, didn't go against you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, I see, I understand exactly what you mean. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think with me, I... Yeah, it, uh, I, like, uh, we had a visa for 30 days. We crossed Nigeria quite quickly for a finish. And uh, I was in touch with other fellow travellers and nearly the opposite to what you're saying, Jim, because I was telling them, oh, really, Nigeria was really bad for us. You know, I, I, everywhere was great now except Nigeria. And oh, I wouldn't go back to Nigeria again. I, and I was saying this quite a bit. But yet at the same time, I was reading on the internet or reading reports back from other travellers that said they had such a super time, you know, yeah. and I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe it was just me that was had the unlucky experience this time, you know. So, yeah, it depends what way you frame it, really, you know. You say that if, if you're, one of the things you say is, is that if your dreams don't scare you, then maybe they're not big enough. What does that mean? Uh, you know, I... Uh, I think as human beings, we are capable of far more than what we give ourselves credit for. And the reason I say that is I take my own, my very own example of making such a trip like this, uh, which is something I never thought I would be capable of doing or that I would have the wherewithal to pull off. But now I do realise that I'm capable of much more than maybe what I might ever have given myself credit for. And I do think that, you know, uh, and I've often spoken about this to, to urge people to push the boat out a little bit, you know, uh, push, push that perceived barrier out a little bit, you know. Uh, and there is, there's, you know, a, a, a true adventure, I think, Maybe it's, it's difficult to know. I, I, I admire that 
guy who jumped from space uh, about 155,000 metres two years ago. Uh, I would really have been afraid to do that. But yet there are people who are afraid to walk outside their front door. So everybody's limit or, or barrier uh, for fear happens at, you know, at different places. But I just do think we are capable of a whole lot more than what we give ourselves credit for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to feel a little bit of fear uh, is no bad thing. You know. Well, to fear something like not being able to do the paperwork is one thing. To fear what you did, that experience that you just recounted, where you're marched off to a different place with people who aren't really officials, that's a different kind of fear. That's not mm-hmm. the kind of fear that you're trying to suppress, though, is it? No, but uh, I think if you, you know, I would look at it maybe from the point of view of all of the things I've done in my life, particularly in relation to travel uh, and all of the borders I crossed and all of the situations I found myself in. And uh, I I cycled solo across Lake Baikal one time in the middle of winter, uh, which a lot of people thought was a rather dumb thing to do. But you can, from an engineering point of view with the, your engineering head, you can you can you can research what the danger is you can take precautions to mitigate against those major risks and of course that's all very sensible to do that and you're still going to feel some fear and i feel that fear that you feel is kind of harmless you know you you've taken care of the major the major possibility of what can go wrong of course there's going to be some residual fear but look at just get through that barrier and just get out there and do it. So due diligence and, and accept your level of risk and get out there and yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah, So you still get the fear. You just respond oh, yeah. to it differently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you could still look in the mirror and see that gate closing and still get that feeling yeah. of the panic, but yeah. the way you deal with that is going to be different. Yeah. And I think I have learned that throughout my trip. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned you know, there about going in Africa. You've told a couple of stories about there. So you went from South America. You, you shipped your bike over to Africa. Uh, did you ship to, to South Africa? Yeah, I shipped from, uh, so I, I've, one year I finished in Ushuaia. Well, actually rode up along the, the east coast of South America to Buenos Aires. And I had it shipped, actually put on the back of an airplane and sent to uh, Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. And and then you rode up from there, which there's there's so much in what you've done. But you, you did mention Lake Backel a, a couple of times. You mentioned that you were intrigued by it, and you thought about you know the possibility of riding a motorcycle, which I don't I don't get. I mean I don't understand where somebody mentions a frozen lake, and you start thinking of riding a motorcycle because in most parts, at least in the part of the world that I live in, winter is not really associated with motorcycles. So. What makes you think about riding a motorcycle on this lake, which is, you know, I think it's, I think it's the, the earth's uh, largest uh, freshwater lake. I think it holds a third, yeah. of, is a third of the freshwater in the world. Yeah. I think it's, it's something like 20% anyway. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a huge amount and it's really, really yeah. deep. So, I mean, it's notable for those things, but what makes you think about riding on it? I think, you know, Jim, and I, I, I would maybe certainly see how anybody could be skeptical about that idea. And you live up in Canada and I know there are an awful lot of incidents up in Canada of where people have died uh, on by falling through ice. Uh, 
in wintertime, you know. But uh, again, it's kind of, you know, it's calculated. And uh, I, when I was there one particular summer passing through, people were mentioning, oh, we drive, we can drive a truck on this lake. And uh, I I did a lot of research on it. And I found from my research that the ice can be up to one meter thick in places. You can have open water in other places. And I think I learned a little bit as well when I was there about how to read the ice. And yeah, it's, I think I mitigated most of the major risks. I did take, a, a, you know, a, 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 what do you call it, a GPS uh, life preserver type, what do they call it, a SOS. The satellite beacon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had a satellite phone as well. But what was the point of what you were doing? I don't know, Jim, sometimes <laughs> I think, <laughs> yeah. Isn't that I, a question I, that a lot of people are going to ask you though, when you're starting to get yeah, ready for this trip? Yeah. You know, you're talking about going into winter time and all this preparation. And I mean, don't they ask you like, wh- why are you doing yeah. this? Yeah. I, I think, yeah, that's, you know, sometimes I think in life, if, if I came to a fork road and if it said left is easy route and right is treacherous route, I'd have to take the right hand one. And I'm not sure why. Is it to prove something to myself? Uh, here I am asking you. <laughs> mm. uh, I, I'd say probably, yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of that stemmed maybe from my poor confidence as a kid. Mm that you're maybe out to prove that, look at, I can do this. Uh, but equally, equally, it's great to get out there and have a huge adventure and to meet many people. I'm uh, on Lake Baikal. I met many people uh, who were walking, who were sledding. Uh, yeah. And, and doing stuff not terribly different to what I was doing. And of course, I, I, I heard of uh, tourists who fell through the water and and didn't survive, you know, and mm-hmm. that happens too, you know. But, you know, I think as well, I often think, uh, you know, my parents passed on a number of years ago and in, in their latter part of life, I would have visited with them and you would find sometimes you're in a nursing home or you're in a home where there are people who you know are going to die very soon. And I often look at these people and I think to myself, well, that man there now, he's never going to be cycling across Lake Baikal. You know, his journey is finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here I am, I, I, I'm I'm still well capable of doing this stuff. So, you know, and I've often thought as well, if there was a way to leave this earth, uh, maybe to do it, uh, you know, I, I often joke among my friends saying, if I went over some ravine on a motorcycle in a ball of flame, what a better way to go than to sit for years in a nursing home. So there's a bit of that too. Well, I agree. If if, if it was one or the other in that case, and the, the, but I mean, dying at home in your bed at sleep, that's kind of a yeah. nice way to do it too, rather than yeah, a fire in ball of flame. Yeah, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> But you know, you know, it's interesting. Now I, I'm, I'm going to sort of go off on a, on a, on a left turn here because we just started on the story about Lake Bacall and I want to talk about that. But 
you just mentioned something that made me think of it. And, and you're talking about trying to overcome something from your childhood. And what, one of the, the incidents you had was about bungee jumping, where you, were, you thought you might want to try bungee jumping. Can you just tell that story? Yeah, that was, well, you know, Jim, um, we often talked about the idea of bungee jumping and I had made it very clear to many people that that is a bridge too far for me and that I, w- I would never do a bungee jump, you know, because I, I think I would have trust issues in the mechanical integrity of the setup. Mm-hmm. And I decided I, I, that's something I would never do unashamedly. But I was in a, a town called Nizna in South Africa and they have the highest bungee jump, uh, bridge bungee jump in Nizhna. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to head out there because it'd be kind of cool to see it. And also I was kind of interested a little bit in the architecture of the bridge. And sure, if there's a few people doing a bungee jump, that'd kind of be a nice way to spend a day too. And it was 60 kilometers out. And I rode out and on the way out, of course, you're thinking about the possibility. God, I wonder what I give it a go myself. And I decided that if all the conditions were perfect, well, then there would be about a 1% chance that I too would do it. (laughs) And I arrived out there and thankfully it was quite a miserable day and there was a heavy wind blowing and there weren't too many people there. And one or two mad people did do the bungee jump. And I thought, well, this is great. At least I don't have to do it now because these conditions that I put in place for myself don't prevail. And I got back on the bike after about an hour and headed back the 60 kilometers back into Nizhna. I remember going out the road, riding back to Nizhna, thinking to myself, you, you're such a fraud. You know, you, you go and you give motivational speak, speeches in hotels and t- telling people to face your fears and do it anyway. And all of this malarkey. And look at you now, you're riding your motorbike back to Nizhna. And, uh, and then I dismissed that and I rode a bit further and the war inside my head just became bigger and bigger and bigger. And after 40 kilometres, I remember slowing down a little bit on the hard shoulder in a kind of a 50-50 mindset. And I looked in the rearview mirror and there was nobody behind and I banged a U-turn on the road. And the funniest thing, Jim, the instant I banged that U-turn, I was 100% committed that I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And I rode out feeling reasonably comfortable in myself, 40 kilometers all the way back. I parked up the bike. I went down, I paid my money. I went up to the place where you get the harness. I put on the harness and off we went. Your march down onto the bridge and I did that bungee jump. Mm. What was that like? Well, I seen the video of it afterwards and um, I looked like a scared little girl. <laughs> So you had yeah. fun. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just did it without delay. And uh, I think if I would, I, I would do it again, definitely. And I think I would more try to savor the moment of doing it. I think when I jumped off, it was just, ah, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> with my eyes closed and my hands waving everywhere. Yeah. But, uh, but it, it felt good to do it. You know, it really did. Uh, I, I, I had, decided when I was riding back towards Nizhna, if you can't do this, what's the next thing, the next obstacle that makes you afraid that you're going to refuse as well? You know, it really kind of had a bit of a profound effect on me. I said, you, you, you need to get over this barrier. 
Because are you going to continually in your life reject things that cause you a little bit of stress? But you don't want to take every challenge though, do you? I mean, you know, if you go buy a place and they're, they're feeding alligators, you know, from your bare hand yeah. and the thrill is to have sure. them yanked out of your hand. Do you have to do that to, to prove it to yourself? Do you have to yeah, take every no, challenge? I, I, I don't think so. But, but I do, I do think, uh, uh, you know, how could I say if it's in the realm of what really interests you. So, I mean, I really do like motorcycling and I like to, you know, I, I have some very, uh, challenging plans in Siberia that I'm hoping to go back. And I, I've now, since Baikal, have got this very perverse interest in cold and how the body manages cold. And I'm now looking to to do something maybe extraordinarily crazy back in Siberia. But again, it's within the realm of things that I'm comfortable with. It's not with the crocodile. Mm. Uh, it's within things that I'm comfortable with and that I can make good decisions about how to mitigate things that can go wrong and how to be reasonably well prepared. You'll never be, you'll never be fully prepared, you know, and I'd often say to people that the person who waits until 100% of everything is in place will never go. Yeah. I'm of the same mindset. I think I, I don't like anything that holds me. I don't like being fearful of anything that holds me back from doing something that I want to do, but I certainly don't go looking for, you know, um, crazy things to do just to prove to myself that I'm, I'm not scared because I'm not sure you're really proving anything anyway. That is fact is as far as you're not being scared because you are scared when you go up to it, but you're just pushing yourself to do it. So what you're proving is not that you don't have the fear. You're proving that you have the personal power to push yourself to do these things that, um, that you want to do, which is a, an interesting thing in itself. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I agree. I, I agree, you know, and uh, like I know from uh, when I cycled across this lake in Siberia about two years later, actually, we brought together six international motorcyclists uh, and we shot a film and we, we rode the entire length of the lake this time. Lake Baikal, actually, if you look at it on a map, it looks a little bit like a banana. So it's quite narrow. It's about 80 kilometers across, but it's 680 kilometers in length. So we brought six motorcyclists and actually a four-wheeled drive vehicle also and, and ended up taking away two Guinness World Records. And I remember afterwards, actually, we were interviewed afterwards about why would you have put yourself in that zone of risk to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. But like, I really do feel we understood the level of the risk and we mitigated ourselves as well as possible against it. And when you look at the, the huge achievement or the huge euphoria and the people that we met and the things that happened and the memories that we now have in our life, uh, I would do it again tomorrow. Well, I mean, there's no way you did that with a thought in your mind that you're going to die on that trip no. or that something terrible is going to happen. And probably I, w I would guess that you wouldn't even have done the trip if you thought there was a, even a good chance if the favor was in, on the side of something going wrong. And you, you yeah, just said, you know, you, you tried to mitigate all the problems. So, mm -hmm. I mean, um, I think from the outside, it's easy to look at and think that's absolutely crazy. And why would you do something so crazy? But in your mind, as you've stated, you know, you, you've done it in a calculated fashion where you see the outcome in very uh, high percentage in your favor of, of being a good outcome. Uh, absolutely. So it's not recklessness. Definitely not. Yeah. Uh, although 
the funny thing about it is many people who don't understand the, the mechanics as you have just outlined there and the risk mitigation and the preparation, many people would actually consider that it is reckless. Sure. But they really don't understand the, the, the research and the, you know, the, that goes into it and, the, you know, the way you can conduct it, that it will not be so dangerous and so on, you know. Mm-hmm. You mentioned about being in the, in the old age home. And, and thinking that when you see somebody thinking this person is no longer, you know, going to, to do something along the lines of what you're doing right now. And, and they're at the end of their, their life. And the fact of the matter is that it's going to happen to all of us. We're all headed there. We're all going to end up there eventually. Do you ever wonder you sort of what you get from doing more exotic things in life when in the end, I mean, I always picture it like a, like a board game, like, you know, the, the, all the pieces get picked up and thrown back into the box. In other words, you're leaving with nothing. You're leaving anything behind. Is it a legacy that you think about leaving or is it about living each day? Yeah, I'd say definitely, Jim, it's, it's just about living each day. The legacy, I don't really, I've never even thought of that concept. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and the funny thing about it, like I, I, I turned 60 last uh, March. I, I know it's very, uh, uh, very, maybe a very deep bit of conversation, but like, to be honest, if somebody told me, look, you have six months to live from tomorrow, I'd actually think to myself, well, boy, oh boy, didn't I have a great life? And, and, and what's really to be regretted? Why? What makes it a great life? I think just the fact that I I feel very privileged to have been able to do some of these things, uh, to have been able to ride a bike around the world, to have been able to go to Lake Baikal, to to be able now to put further plans in place for Siberia, uh, for the people I met, for the experiences I had, good, bad and indifferent, for our own family who travelled so much uh, all across Europe, uh, and these children then grew up to be very international children who were not afraid to travel across the world. Uh, my wife, who actually just uh, bought a motorcycle two years ago and passed her driving test about one or two months ago and is now also planning to to live life, uh, you know, like this. Nice. Yeah, I think life is for living. Does traveling by motorcycle make you a better person? I think it probably does. In what ways? I think you get to realize, you know, that uh, I I certainly think, as we said earlier, that uh, people are the same no matter where you meet around the world. You meet so many very good people. You you try, of course, uh, I always try for example, when I was waiting at that steel gate to get into Côte d'Ivoire, there was a guy came to me quite shyly after about half an hour and he said, they're not letting me in neither. I said, really? Yeah, he said, they're looking for 10,000, whatever local currency was, which is about $15. And I said, you know what? Here's 10,000. And... It's only, it was only $15, but I would be a real believer in if, I, like I've learned from my trips, if I can do something good for him, 
maybe something good will happen to the situation that I'm now finding myself in. Mm. He was sure a local? To our, a local fellow, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I think that would have been quite a lot of money for him. And sure enough, two hours later, the gates were opened and I too was allowed in, you know. Mm. I, I found, yeah, I just, I think you, you develop a little bit of a, an empathy for your fellow human because, you know, I, I've seen so many places around the world where people are living in, in very poor conditions and, and I think when you realise how fortunate you are yourself, it becomes easier to be kinder to other people who are less fortunate. Mm-hmm. And you'll only really experience that from your from from seeing it firsthand when you travel. I think if I had never left my my own country, you're probably your personality. I think you might have maybe a very insular approach to world affairs and so on. You know, Declan, thank you so much. It's, it's been a real joy sitting down and talk with you, and at least hearing some of your many many adventures. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Jim, my pleasure. An absolute pleasure to talk to you too. And stay warm. Don't go walking in any ice lakes. That was adventure motorcyclist Declan McAvoy at his home in Ireland, enjoying the winter and spending some time planning the next leg of his adventure. We've got some photos from Declan, as well as links to his social media accounts and different projects that he's working on, all in the show notes for this episode at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and of course to you the listener thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show. The show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support. Drop by our website adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker. Uh, anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. There's a bunch of different ways. We would really appreciate it if you consider signing up to our patron account so we can count on you being there uh, each month. Just think about what you pay for a cup of coffee or some of those incidentals in life and what you get from them. And then if you listen to Adventure Rider Radio all the time, think about what you get from that and and just, you know, consider it. Anyway, we would really appreciate that. I mentioned Raw, our other show that we do. It comes out once a month. We have another episode coming out soon. And that's a a different style show from Adventure Rider Radio, but a lot of fun and very popular. Again, you can find it on our website and you can listen to it everywhere podcasts are found. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next week. Hi, my name is Carolis Melauskas from Be Coldest Ride and you are listening to Adventure Ride Radio. (laughs) 